Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the October 2016 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm Rick Rollo. And I'm Stephanie Dugin. So in this episode, we speak with HMS professor Stacy Gruber about marijuana research. Uh, Stephanie, does this make this a podcast? Ha ha. Actually, Stacy shared a whole bunch of terrible puns she's used in her paper titles, so stay tuned to hear some of those. Oh yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So tell us what else we'll hear about. Stacy is an associate professor of psychiatry at McLean Hospital, and she studies both recreational and medical marijuana use. So she describes some of what we're learning about the effects of marijuana on brain structure, brain function, and quality of life in teens and adults. She says we know frighteningly little about the good or bad side effects of medical marijuana beyond symptom relief, and she's trying to fill that knowledge gap. That seems especially critical at a time when more and more states are voting to approve marijuana for certain uses. Exactly. Uh, I'm intrigued. Let's go to the interview. So, Dr. Groover, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I have to start with the big question. Why study marijuana? <laughs> Why study marijuana? Why not study marijuana? <laughs> um, it's certainly a topic on everybody's mind right now. Mm -hmm. It's been around for thousands of years. And currently we have five states that have pending ballot initiatives to mm -hmm. legalize recreational marijuana. Including Massachusetts. Including Massachusetts, that's right. We're being bombarded already with advertisements. I don't know if you've caught them. Mm -hmm. um, 25 states plus D.C., have fully recognized medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. Another 18 have partial medical marijuana laws. So it's something that's very common at, at this point. And I think it's on everybody's mind with regard to whether or not there are really negative effects mm -hmm. from using marijuana. What we know about marijuana predominantly comes from studies of recreational users. We have very little with regard to the effect of medical marijuana use. Mm -hmm. So people do want to know, is this really something that's bad for me? So what are some of the things that you have been learning in the years that you've been studying now medical marijuana use? So we started a medical marijuana program a little under two years ago called MIND. Marijuana, MIND. Mar yeah, Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery, mm -hmm. the MIND program. And it was really launched to be able to begin to understand some of the effects of medical marijuana treatment on cognitive performance. How well can people pay attention? How well can they inhibit inappropriate actions, which is another really big area of, of interest for us. Mm -hmm. How well uh, do they perform tasks that require memory, serial list learning versus you know, prose or, or um, semantic related information? How well can they do that? Mm -hmm. What about measures of brain structure, uh, brain function, brain integrity? How, how do they look over time? What we're seeing, and again, this is it's early on, we've just published this first paper, and it's a very small number of subjects who have come, come back for their first check-in visit. Mm -hmm. What we see so far is no decrement in performance of what we call frontal executive tasks, tasks mediated by the frontal part of your brain. Frontal part of your brain is the last to come online during mm -hmm. development and the first to go from regular <laughs> aging. It's also incredibly sensitive to things like drugs and alcohol, especially when you're young. In our recreational studies, we see lots of differences in the ability to perform tasks mediated by that part of the brain. So the big question is, do we see the same thing in the medical marijuana patients? Sure. So far, we're not seeing a decrement. Now, again, this is just after three months, so baseline versus three months. Mm -hmm. Not only do patients not look worse, they actually look slightly improved. 
Well, that's promising. It's very promising, very interesting. So they're performing these tasks a little faster without an accuracy trade-off, which is interesting and definitely something that's intriguing, and we want to look at this over time. Does that mean that that will hold true when we look at other cognitive domains like memory? I don't know. We also see changes in things like quality of sleep, um, some measures of quality of life, mm -hmm. and very interestingly change in their regular or sort of standard medication treatments. Their, pharma their pharmacologic regimen has changed a lot in three months. How so? So, for example, we saw a 42% reduction in opiate use in the medical marijuana patients. That's a big change. That's a big deal in that's, an era of opioid crisis. That's a very big deal. And people are basically saying, I don't need 18 or 20 oxy a week anymore. I don't think I took one last week. That's a tremendous statement. We see changes in antidepressant use, benzodiazepine use, anxiolytics. Pretty much every category we looked at, we can't really do statistics this is a very small sample size, and I'd be reticent to, you know, to sort of run and say absolutely positively this is going to hold, but it's certainly something that's interesting that we need to, to follow. And that's why this study continues mm -hmm. for two years. In terms of brain imaging, we haven't published this yet, but it looks very promising. Again, what we're seeing is what I would call a, quote, normalization of um, brain activation patterns, which is pretty interesting. We didn't restrict the study to people with a single clinical indication. For example, there are patients whose primary indication is pain mm -hmm. or PTSD mm -hmm. or anxiety or sleep disorders, all different indications, and most of them have more than one, which I think is also interesting. Yeah. So we're sort of taking all comers at first. That's the first phase of this particular study. We have some others. We're about to launch a study of veterans, actually. It's very exciting. And we have, we've been approved for a clinical trial. So it's, Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's an exciting time. There's a lot, of, a lot of ground to cover. Policy has outpaced science, and now we have to catch up. Speaking of policy, in a few weeks, <laughs> uh, Massachusetts residents are going to be voting on a ballot question about yeah. whether to legalize recreational marijuana right. for people over 21. Right. Does your research have any relation to that? So... You know, our research really in the recreational domain suggests that regular, consistent marijuana use prior to the age of 16 results in a different pattern of performance on lots of different tasks and measures of brain structure and measures of brain function relative to those who start later. So I've had some people say, well, that's 16. Mm -hmm. this, the law allows only 21-year-olds mm -hmm. and over to have access. And that's true. Would it perhaps be slightly better to have a slightly older age limit? Sure. Most mm -hmm. neuroscientists will tell you, oh, if we could only push that number out a little bit. Um, but I, I certainly think it's better than 16 or 18, mm -hmm. um, which I think a lot of people were pushing for. Um, I think it'll be an interesting time to see what happens with the election. I've heard very, very mixed things from lots of different people. Hmm. Is it hard to keep politics separate from the research that you're trying to do? You know, for me as a scientist, I'm really interested in the truth. Not necessarily, you know, whether it's it's good for you, bad for you, but it does have policy implications, right? And so the one thing I would say is what we've seen over the last several decades is an in exponential increase in potency. Potency is measured by the amount of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, mm -hmm. in the products. That's what's going to get you high. Higher numbers, greater potency. That number's gone up almost 200% since 95. Yikes. Between 95 and 2004, the average potency has increased. We don't have data from human subjects on the effects of increased potency products. Hmm. 
I wish we did. We also don't have data yet on what we call concentrates. Concentrates are products that are specifically designed to have super high levels of THC. In some cases, 50, 60, 80, and higher in terms of the percentage of THC. Shatter, wax, butter, um, dabs, these things are all very high in THC. And I think it would be great to know what the impact of those things might be, or at least give people some guidance and say, if you're between the ages of this and this, mm-hmm. you can only have access to products that go up to this point in mm-hmm. THC. I think there are some states that are considering that type of legislation. Do you ever have trouble being taken seriously because of the area <laughs> of your research? Um, what I get a lot is, well, I mean, you know. You know how it is. I mean, <laughs> clearly you must use a lot of this to be able to study this, which I think is pretty pretty interesting. And I think, I wonder if everybody in some area of research gets hit with that a lot. I think a lot of people um, assume that this is something that isn't necessarily the most hard science topic one could choose. And I really fell into this. It wasn't as if I you know, started off and this, is, this was my calling. Um, but once you're in it, you really can't walk away because it's one of the most amazingly complicated and fascinating areas I think I, I know I've ever been involved with. And the medical marijuana aspects of all of this research is probably some of the most compelling and exciting I have ever done. And so for that reason alone, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to walk away. But yeah, I get a lot of that but do you really study it, or is it just a bunch of people sitting around smoking? I think a lot of people think we just give people marijuana, we sit around, we chat, you know, that's, that's the end of the study. They eat Cheetos, they have a Coke. That's not how it is? And that's not how it is. They do get snacks. Um, <laughs> our, our subjects, our recreational subjects, and our medical patients, everybody gets snacks. In fact, I don't feel happy unless they've had several snacks during their visit. makes me feel good if they're eating. I feel like that's, that's a good thing. So they get paid, they get snacks. And they get someone to listen to them for as long as they want to talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, etc. So I've never seen a more invested group of individuals either. The recreational users are desperate to get people to understand why they're smoking mm-hmm. or, you know, vaping or however they're using it. And they take this very seriously. And we should, too. If it's like rock and roll. It's here to stay. <laughs> we need to figure out the very best and safest ways that people can be using it recreationally. Um, And from a medical perspective, we need to figure out how to exploit every possible benefit. And for some people, how to ensure that that doesn't come with unnecessary and unwanted side effects like lots of psychoactivity or an altered state of being. And I think that's possible, given what we know about this miraculously complex plant. Great. You said this is one of the most exciting things you can think of to work on. So what's exciting about it for you? Well, I see tremendous clinical promise. I mean... When you look at stories or you listen to, I listen to patients who come back three months, six months, and they say, this changed my life. This changed my life. I can leave my house. I can go shopping. I don't worry anymore. And I'm not walking around stone. This is, this is like a new existence. When you hear stories like this, that's really one of the things that got me interested in doing marijuana research. I was doing a lot of work in um, bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And patients with bipolar disorder use marijuana. It's the second most commonly used substance if you have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is the first. And Great. Yeah, good to know. And it's legal. I always say if alcohol were discovered tomorrow, it would probably be in Schedule 1, just like marijuana. Um, and there were lots of different stories that I heard from patients. And many times their psychiatrists didn't know they were using marijuana at all. Um, and they would say, you know, when I feel really down or I feel like I'm spiraling, take a hit or two and I feel better mm-hmm. and on the other side we have people who say when I feel like I'm getting manic I, I can't settle myself I take a hit and oh, everything is okay and I thought wow 
That's amazing. And as it turns out, for at least a subset of patients, there appear to be some mood stabilizing effects from cannabis. I'm not saying for everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all products. Mm -hmm. But that deserves far greater exploration because there's a reason that people do what they do, and we should understand it. You had a study come out this spring or this summer about marijuana and bipolar disorder, right? Yeah, that was our second study of, of that uh, group, patients with bipolar disorder who used marijuana, those who didn't, pure marijuana smokers and healthy controls. We gave people handheld devices. Um, I took a lot of um, a lot of heat for that. People said, oh, the marijuana-using people will never bring them back. They're going <laughs> to sell them. That's it. We didn't lose any devices. These people were, again, as invested as anyone could be. And they kept track of their mood during the day for four weeks. And we looked at changes in mood before using versus after using marijuana. And we saw some really striking differences in the marijuana-using patients with bipolar disorder versus the non-marijuana-using bipolar patients. Um, and it's pretty interesting. Again, I think there are ways to exploit and explore cannabinoid-based therapies without having people smoke a ton of cannabis-based products that are going to cause lots of psychoactivity and potentially negative effects. We hear just as many stories of people who smoke or try cannabis, and they say, oh, my God, I got so paranoid. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. And certainly that happens. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important to know what you're using right. and how you're using it. Marijuana is as complex as anything could be. We use that term to describe anything that comes from the plant, cannabis, sativa L. But there are hundreds of constituents. And the ratio and the amount of the individual constituents make a whole lot of difference in the effect and the mode that you use to use the product, whether you're smoking or vaping or using an edible or topical, a sublingual tincture. All these things make a difference, how much and how frequently you use. So you have to keep it all in mind. That true of medical marijuana as well as recreational? That's, I was speaking specifically, actually, about medical marijuana because mm -hmm. those folks are really interested in sticking to some kind of regimen. And so they'll often say, you know, I figured I'd use it three or four times a day, and they realize very quickly, maybe not. It <laughs> might be too much, especially if they've chosen something that's high in THC, again, that psychoactive constituent. What's the most interesting thing to you that you have learned in your 27-ish years now of doing this research? Yikes, it's a long time. Um, I think the most interesting things have come really more recently from the medical marijuana exploration. I think that there really is tremendous potential. I think that there's way more that we don't know. Mm -hmm. There are way more questions that we have to answer, and some of them are hard. How do you standardize a plant? <laughs> How do you know that, you know, purple kush is the same if I get it here versus getting it in California? Soil is different. All sorts of things are different. Right. And the answer is you can't really, so you have to rely on other methods to do that. Um, how do you ensure that people who are, quote, smoking are getting the same amount of their inhaling versus, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's lots of things to address. But I have never seen anything that has been quite as compelling or life-changing as this particular cohort and what they report. And this really, really keeps it going for me. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. And when you think of the potential and all of these cannabinoids and what they perhaps could do, I think the future is quite bright. The recreational folks, I think one of the best things that we've been able to determine is that when you separate people into those with early versus later onset, you really do begin to see differences that make sense. We never say to people when we give these lectures, or we talk to um, teachers or policymakers, we never say just say no because those messages did not work. <laughs> we say just not yet. <laughs> give your brain a chance. Um, you have plenty of time. 
nobody likes to hear somebody say to them, you can never do X. What do you think they're going to do? The minute minute they have the opportunity. If you just give people the information, usually they can make a better decision than if you don't. Do you have a main goal or a couple of goals that you want to achieve as you continue to do this work? I think one major goal would be to determine how best we might be able to help people with what I would call pretty chronic conditions that don't always get a ton of attention because they're walking and they're talking. We're not talking about people who are hospitalized because they have a psychotic disorder, but people who walk around with a fair amount of something like anxiety, Mm -hmm. who say, boy, on any given day, I'm about a seven of 10, but I just keep it, you know, sort of to myself. I don't talk about it. Um, I think that there's tremendous potential to harness some of these constituents and really see them at work. I think that, again, for as many indications as we have, there are possible solutions and treatments. I think that's a huge goal, to see how some of this product and drug development may very well change the lives and the courses of people's lives over time. Um, I also think that for individuals who have this idea of what it means to use marijuana, it would be really great to be able to explain to people that there are different reasons that people use these products and it isn't always just to get high. In fact, for most of our medical marijuana patients, they don't want to get high at all. They just want to feel better. Mm-hmm. That's that's their goal. So, you know, I think another major goal would really be to help educate the public. I was surprised at what people didn't know. So as you work with patients and as you go out and give talks across the city and across the country... Um, do you get frequent questions from people that it might be useful to share the answers for our listeners? I would say yes. There's lots of things that I think people ask in some of these venues that I wish more people understood better. Um, I did have somebody say, if I were going to start making this on my own, and I thought, okay, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I could walk you through the steps of how to do it, or you know, even if I could, I'm not sure I'd want to do that. Um, I do get questions about how long things linger in the system, typically from the recreational cohort. How can I get this out quickly? How can I make sure I'm going to be negative? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no single T that I know of that really pulls it straight out of your system. I think whoever discovers and creates a product like that is going to be um, a very, very wealthy person. That's a really big one. Um, because despite the fact that we have the majority of states who have legalized some form of medical marijuana and a growing number legalizing recreational use, there is still the fact that it's a Schedule One substance. So at the federal level, this is illegal. And so people who work for companies, you know, across the country, if they find out you're using it, you can be fired. Mm-hmm. I've had a few people um, in our study, our medical marijuana study, say, will anybody find out about this? Because I don't want to run the risk of being fired. And that's a really important thing. Um, And it's something to keep in mind as we move forward. You know, the nation has warmed toward the idea of marijuana, Mm -hmm. right, as medicine and perhaps recreationally. It's really important to make sure that we also are doing things to make sure that people are protected. So state and federal regulations are at odds with each other currently. I'm hoping that that changes. You said a growing number of states, and that made me think about the number of possible marijuana puns that must be in your work all the time. Absolutely, especially you know, again, we did a lot of we do a lot of work in recreational marijuana users, specifically those who are young, 
half baked, <laughs> um, up in smoke, you know. Um, we have lots of things like that that people sort of hit us with. I always like to say it's high times in marijuana research. I never even <laughs> think of it that way. I always say it is high times in marijuana research. People start laughing, you know. There's a growing number of strains. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's true. <laughs> Budding efforts. I mean, you know, we, we take them anywhere we can get them. The you grass is always greener. I think this last paper is called <laughs> Splendor in the Grass. So, you know, any place I can, I can get these things. Going green, you know, we, we, we try very hard. Going green doesn't just mean making sure that you're recycling. So. It must be a requirement to have a good sense of humor. I wish that everybody had a good sense of humor about this. There are some people who are very clearly on one side of this issue, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But they have no sense of humor about it. And to them, it is absolutely <laughs> not funny. And I've had just a couple of people say, how can you make your life's work? out of the devil's weed. And I always think, <laughs> don't say it. You know, I, I, I can't say anything really in response to that. You know, I'm not sure I'd label it the devil's weed. Do we know the devil had something to do with it? Is there evidence? <laughs> you know, I show a slide that actually shows Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and instead of a fig leaf, it's a cannabis leaf, to make the point that this is not new. It's been around for thousands of years for reasons that we are still trying to understand. It was part of our U.S. pharmacopoeia until 1942, which meant people prescribed it. Um, for lots of different things. So it's important to keep those things in mind. And when people get too serious about it, I always remind them of that. I feel like we should close on a high note. High note? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Go ahead. What is the most fun part of being a marijuana researcher? Well, first of all, really, truly, the people that I get to... I feel like I have the best job on the planet. I do. I get to see really some of the happiest people on the planet, that's for sure. The recreational people are pretty happy, (laughs) by and large. Um, And the medical people are pretty invested and pretty devoted to doing these studies. The most fun thing is probably charting their use. I know that sounds like it's really boring. (laughs) You have no idea how varied and how interesting some of these strain names are. Like what? Um, Well, I mean, you know, like super cheese or, (laughs) I I mean, they they sort of range from the sublime to the ridiculous. And people are not put off by this. You know, we've had very, very conservative looking people who come in and they pull out a binder and they've kept very, very good records of what they've purchased and how much they use. They say, you know, when I used strawberry cough, what (laughs) I noticed, you know, it's hard to take someone seriously when they're talking about that, but it's serious. You know, I think I think all of that is a lot of fun. And it's great to see people's lives change in such a positive way. For the recreational people, it's great to be able to have the ability to talk to people about their use and not have them feel judged and not have them feel stigmatized and not have them feel like they have to somehow tell you something that is not really the truth. Mm-hmm. I think they know that that's what we're after. And as a result, again, the recreational people are like, I'll bring you this. And you know, we tell them, no, no, don't, please don't do that. Please don't. Please leave that there. Um, but they're they're desperate to share this because it's important. It's a part of their life, and it's on us to understand it. It's on us to try to figure out the ways in which they can use it the most beneficial and safest way as possible. That's great. It's helpful. Well, thank you very much for coming here to talk with us well, today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Harvard Med, or like us on Facebook.